You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. One of the things that happens when he's in Chicago, Michael Jordan punches his lights out. You wouldn't think that's a good thing, right? Again, one of the best things to ever happen to Steve because Steve fought back and that earned Michael Jordan's respect in a way that was never going to happen for Steve Kerr as a player because he just couldn't keep up with Michael Jordan. But the fact that he was slugging it out literally told Michael a great deal about who this guy is and that I want him in the foxhole with me. Great to have you on board. If you don't like that, my guest is coming up in just a moment. Then we'll have our crowd ultra Q&A. And my rant is Kings related today. That's all coming up on my podcast. And my podcast is brought to you by the good folks at New Works Plumbing. Locally owned in Sacramento for 20 years. Leak detection, water line repair, bathroom plumbing. New Works Plumbing is a full service plumbing solution. No matter how small or how large your plumbing problem, they've got a fix for you. And they're expert technicians. They're available to you 24-7 for all of your plumbing needs. Just go to newworksplumbing.com, N-E-W-W-R-X plumbing.com. My guest on the podcast today has covered the NBA for over 30 years, and he is coming out with his third book on June 15th. It is called Steve Kerr, A Life. The author is Scott Howard Cooper, and he joins us right here on If You Don't Like That with Grant Napier. Scott, how are you, buddy? I am great. It is wonderful to be with you. I can't believe it, man. It's finally uh, right around the corner. I know you've been working. What is it? You've been working on this two years? It's been about two years. Some uh, the unexpected stops and starts that COVID brought to the schedule. It was originally supposed to come out at the start of this past season, but it's out and it feels like a, a win just to get it out at all. And the, the great publishers of William Morrow have stood by this 100% the entire way. And I'm thrilled that we're getting close to June 15th. I've had the pleasure uh, during my career to talk to Steve Kerr on a number of occasions. I, I've always felt that he has a fascinating life. And I know that that's why you probably decided to write this book, but when did the idea first present itself to you to write a book on Steve Kerr's life? It was really unexpected. The plan was I was going to write a book on how the Warriors went from nothing to consistent champions. And I had a proposal already, and I had an idea in my mind, and it was a couple years ago. And 
almost two years ago, probably to the week. And it was just a matter of as soon as the Warriors beat the Toronto Raptors, we're going to go ahead and sell that book. And Kawhi Leonard had other ideas and Tate had other ideas with injuries to Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson. And when that victory did not happen, I realized I, it was the wrong time to try to sell the Warriors book when you're coming off a loss in the finals. And it was my agent, Tim Hayes, who suggested Steve Kerr. And I'll be honest, at first, I was hesitant. At first, I didn't like the idea. It wasn't a project that appealed to me in a great, in a great way. And he encouraged me to just sit down and sketch out a, a few ideas, maybe write a couple pages and do some research. And the more I looked into it, strictly from a Steve Kerr viewpoint, not the Warriors as a whole, I went from initially thinking, yeah, I don't think there's a book here, to once I got started thinking, yeah, there is a book here, to probably within three months of digging into it, once I got started, my thought process was, I can't believe that somebody hasn't done this already. There were so many layers to his life. There's so many angles and new perspectives to examine that this absolutely was worthy of a book. Steve did not want to participate in this book. How did that change your game plan? Not a great deal. A little bit disappointing, but one of the reasons I was excited to do this is I feel like I speak pretty fluent curve. I've been around him a long time. I've spent hundreds of days around his warriors. I've, I've been interviewing him since the 1980s. I'm very familiar with his high school background and his college background and obviously the NBA. So, yes, there were some things I would have liked to have been able to, to talk to him about. And it was nothing that would have been on the controversial side. It was nothing about China or Trump or anything like that. It was primarily about the thought process. I think I wrote in there when I explained how the book came to be in the acknowledgments, I said it was a minor setback. And, and that's probably the best way to put it. Would I have liked to have had his cooperation? Yes. But was it a, a big hit? No. Your first chapter is called Beirut. Steve's childhood was extreme in uh, many measures, dangerous for his family, uh, dangerous for him at times. The education that he received as a young man had to be fascinating. I just was grabbed immediately at the beginning of this book. Was there one aspect of Beirut, the murder of his father, him being at Arizona at the time, I believe as a freshman, that that you learned about that you just had no idea or did you already know the story and it was just a matter of interviewing some other people and putting it all together and telling it? On the Beirut aspect in particular? Yes. Um, I, I think the biggest thing that I learned was that his father was heading down a bad path for a long time. Um, that this was a tragedy in the making and everybody could see it coming, including the family. His dad knew that, that this could end in tragedy and certainly the family did as well. And there was a, there was a family meeting in the living room at the, at the Kerr's home in Pacific Palisades outside of Los Angeles. And they kind of went around and both parents talked and, and all three of the kids I'm sorry, all, all four of the kids were, were given a chance to speak, Steve and his three siblings. And Steve chose to sort of not say anything. 
is to, you know, get support you whatever you want to do and, and, and trying to, to be a thief. And he always regretted that. And that is something that has really stayed with him because he did not like the idea. He thought that there was a real chance that it was going to end horribly and chose not to speak up and, and always regretted that. And that's one of the many ways that we learn about Steve because he tries to go along and be supportive of people, especially in, in those sort of personal situations, not just in the basketball sense, but in the personal situations, he tries to ultimately be supportive, even if he does not like the idea. And that has hurt him in some ways, including this tragedy with his father. Many years later, when the family sued Iran over his father's, over his father's murder, Steve did not want to participate in that as well. Hmm. But again, went along with it because other people, especially his brother and and a couple of the family members, did want to do it. And I think we learn a great deal about Steve in those moments and in those difficult situations. Steve is very outspoken about gun violence and is not afraid at all to speak up, even without being asked about political issues, particularly leading up to the recent election. Does that stem 100% from what happened to his dad in Beirut? Largely, I don't think entirely, but certainly that's the starting point and the leading factor. He's a guy, the entire family, actually, it's an amazing family. I would not be surprised if somebody did a, did a book on, on the Kerr family as a whole. All these, these people are fascinating and very smart and have made contributions on a global level. So the fact that, that Steve has opinions and an awareness of the world around him strictly is a product of growing up in a family where you're encouraged to examine the world around him. But obviously, uh, losing his father to gun violence was the largest factor in all of it. He could speak on a personal level. It wasn't just a policy matter. But then, as he went on, and as we look at, at the Steve Kerr of 2021, there's several different kinds that gun violence has, or, or even terrorism, has impacted his life and the life of people around him. He came in contact with so many people who were either teammates or had been recently been on a team that he was on who were impacted by gun violence. Michael Jordan, obviously, with his father. There was an assistant coach at the University of Arizona named Ricky Birdsong. Really well-liked. Everybody loved Ricky. And he lost his life to gun violence uh, in Chicago. And Steve was all there at that, at that funeral. Pete Myers had, a, had an impact. Scott Williams, the same thing. All these people that he crossed paths with. His mom is working at UCLA, and there was a murder-suicide through gun violence there a few years ago during when the Warriors are in the NBA Finals. So it, it's something that has been around him in a lot of different ways. But obviously, the issue with the loss of his father is first and foremost. Arizona, Lou Olson, early on, on campus, basketball workouts, and people are looking at Steve Kerr like, no chance, right? What was it 
No, really, right? I mean, how is it that he was able to, you know, get over those initial hurdles? Uh, You look back at his career at Arizona. Was there a turning point for him? Because, again, in the early stages, it looked like, gee, what is he doing on the floor? He's getting crushed. He's he's not just struggling to keep up like a lot of freshmen. He has some of his new teammates in in pickup games just before they were able to begin pitch practices. He has some of his teammates. He's meeting these guys for the first time, and they're watching the face thinking, why even recruit this guy? What, what is he doing here? He was not athletic. He was not, he had decent size, but really couldn't keep up, wasn't fast, couldn't defend. And I think it's just it, it, a couple things happen. It's the Steve Kerr personality that you just put your head down and you keep working. Nothing was given to this guy. In, in a basketball sense. He had to earn everything, and that that includes getting a scholarship in the first place. He's the first guy to say he had no business being at a Pac-10 school and ends up getting it almost on a fluke just because Arizona was so bad and Lee Olson had one more scholarship to give and said, all right, let's just fill the roster out and, and take this guy. And he just kept working, and he sort of went from the end of the bench to the fourth guard, and he ended up becoming the third guard, and just kept going. It's a little bit of that Steve Kerr magic that he continuously, and there were several other times in his life and his career that he turned these horrible moments into one of the best things that would ever happen to him, and that includes going to Arizona, where he was terrible and just kept working. And if there was one specific moment where everything changed, uh, we go back to the death of his father, and Steve wanting to stay at Arizona rather than going to Beirut for the, for the memorial service. It just felt like he needed basketball, but that was not his sport. That was his lifeline. And he ended up going to services that followed at Princeton, uh, where his dad attended, and UCLA, where his dad worked. But he skipped the Beirut service. Uh, the rest of his family was there, and Steve stayed and played Arizona State. And has one of these games that you could not make up. Hmm. That in that setting, with all that on his mind, he goes into the game and starts hitting shot after shot after shot. And you talk to the people who were there that night and they talk about that's one of those moments when people people say chills going down your spine. That was exactly what that night was. He has an unconscious night. And at that point, because everybody knows what was going on in his life, the entire city of Tucson adopts him and he becomes much more than a basketball player and he steps up and he's much more of a leader and he gained confidence. And that was again, at the end of his freshman year, and that was certainly a turning point. You used uh, Steve Kerr magic and it just seems that would kind of fit his entire career from Arizona throughout the NBA. I mean, we saw it, portrayed on The Last Dance uh, when he was interviewed and we saw hitting the big shots and playing with Michael Jordan and everything that went along with that. I mean, when you look at his basketball career, and I won't even get to high school, but we started Arizona and you just chronicled it into the NBA. I mean, magic and magical fit him perfectly, doesn't it? It's an entire career of turning bad into good. We mentioned the college recruiting. He was about to walk on at Cal State Fullerton. <laughs> wow. And this this 
the offer from Lee Olson at Arizona sort of falls from the sky and going to Arizona becomes one of the best things to happen to him. Uh, not only certainly basketball wise, but he meets his future wife. He meets several friends who remain his closest friends to this day. He ends up hurting his knee in the 1986 world championships playing for team USA in Spain. And the team doctor tells him that night before before he even leaves the locker room, you're probably never going to play again. And not only does he play again, but because he has to redshirt what originally would have been his senior season and come back for 1987-88 instead, he's stronger, he's worked hard to build up the leg, and we all know how important uh, that is for a, a shooter. He's stronger, he's got the three-point line that obviously makes him that much more dangerous. And Arizona is much better than it would have been had he played his regular schedule senior season. So he, he goes to the Final Four, and, and that's a big deal. In the middle of his career, he gets traded from Cleveland to Orlando, and he can't, he can't get off the bench. He, he's barely, barely on the radar with the Magic, and he's thinking he might have to retire, but wants to give it one more shot. If somebody would have offered him a guaranteed one-year deal at the minimum on the first day of free agency, he probably would have jumped at it. But because there was no offers, there was no tangible offers through July, through August, through most of September, it's the end of September and the Chicago Bulls coming off a championship, Michael Jordan, John Paxson, B.J. Armstrong say, yeah, all right, we could use an insurance guy, somebody that can shoot. He's a, good, he's a good locker room guy. He's never going to cause trouble if he doesn't play. And that changes his life, obviously, forever, ending up with the Bulls when there was no reason for that to happen. What have, One of the things that happens when he's in Chicago, Michael Jordan punches his lights out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you wouldn't think that's a good thing, right? Again, one of the best things to ever happen to Steve because Steve fought back, and that earned Michael Jordan's respect in a way that was never going to happen for Steve Kerr as a player because he just couldn't keep up with Michael Jordan. But the fact that he was slugging it out, literally told Michael a great deal about who this guy is and that I want him in the foxhole with me. So there's this whole series of events. You hit it exactly right, that so many times that things that were never supposed to happen happened, and it was fate. So much of it is fate. You were in Los Angeles when Phil Jackson had his run with the Lakers LA Times. And you know, you've heard it, you've been covering the NBA for a long time. Oh, gee, anyone could have won with that team. Look at the talent. Steve Kerr, the Golden State Warriors, several future Hall of Famers on that roster. Again, people say, well, gee, you know what? I'm anyone could win if they were coaching that team. When you we talk about Steve Kerr, the coach. How do you perceive him as a coach? Yes, he had talent. Yes, he won. But when you look at the players and you talk to the players, they absolutely love, for the most part, playing for Steve Kerr. How do you look at him as an NBA head coach? I think he's terrific. I think he is unique. He's certainly his own person. There's no phony about him. And all of those things are important. And the players see that, and that registers with him. He had a certain level of respect because – he could throw five rings on the table and Greg Popovich was speaking up for him and Phil Jackson was speaking up for him. So that obviously helped, but he came in in something of a difficult situation. If you remember, uh, Mark Jackson was pretty popular in that locker room. 
And most importantly, he was definitely popular with Steph Curry. Mm -hmm. And so Steve had to sort of earn his way. But slowly but surely he did. He's a great communicator. That's, that's a big part of it. He connects with everybody. And certainly this goes into his own background of living in different cultures. But whether no matter where a player was from or if they were a superstar or the guy just trying to hang on to a job in the NBA, he knew how to connect with them and find what motivates them and make them feel like they're an important part of the team. And he was open to all thoughts. It was, it was, he was obviously the guy who would be in charge and make the final decisions, but he encouraged a lot of different input. He, found, he, he came to realize and study those coaching for a long time before he took the job because he knew he wanted to do it and it was just a matter of the right time waiting for his kids to be old enough where, where he felt he could be gone from home all the time. He readied himself for this job by, by studying other people. And one of the things he came to realize is that it's a lot about that personality. Um, yes, there's X's and O's involved, but if you had great assistant coaches, and he had really, really good assistant coaches proven uh, with a lot of success, it's his personality that really came through that made a big difference. You had something in the introduction of your book that really hit me, and I'm going to share a story with you. After the Kings lost Game 7 in Minneapolis, it was the year that Chris Webber came back in March from his knee surgery and the injury that he had suffered the year before in the playoffs against Dallas. The Kings won their first series, and then they had to go to Minneapolis in a game seven, and they lost the game. Actually, Chris Webber had a three at the buzzer. That was no good. And so we get on the bus, and we had packed because we didn't know if we were going to Sacramento or L.A. because the Lakers were going to be the opponent for the Western Conference Finals. And so I remember doing the game with Gary Gerald and not knowing whether I'd be on a plane tonight going to Sacramento or L.A. And as it turns out, we went to Sacramento. And I'll never forget being in the aircraft hangar, getting ready to go on to the plane. And I was kind of just lounging around, and Vladi Divac and Pacer Stoyakovich were with me at the end of the line as we had to show our license to get through and get on the airplane. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. Vladi was like, that's it. I'm like, what do you mean that's it? He said, that's it, we're done. He goes, it's over. I go, what do you mean it's over? He goes, that's it, we're never going to win. We're done. That was our chance. Our window just closed. It's shut. It's over. And you had the, the the scene of Steve Kerr and Bob Myers, and it was similar, right? Like they, they embraced, they knew they had a great run, but they also knew that that was it, that there was going to be a new chapter beginning, correct? It's just it's what they felt. And Kevin Durant still had not made his decision, but they felt like he was going in the direction that he was going to leave in free agency. At the very least, we figure the next season, even if Kevin resigned, they wouldn't have Durant or Clay Thompson for the next season because of their injuries, or at least for the majority of the season. So they knew the next year was going to be different. And that at that point, when you come back after one left that following season, everybody's a year older and you're really not sure what to expect. And one of the things that Steve had always preached was about appreciating the moment. 
uh, for all these things that we've talked about, that, that he realizes nothing is promised to anybody. And Bob Myers has a similar personality. And they sort of took that moment and gave each other a hug. And certainly there was a little bit of consoling and because we had just lost and certainly a little bit of a, hey, this was a hell of a run just to get here, kind of fighting through everything with the injuries at the end. But it struck some people that it, it kind of had that feel of, let's appreciate what we had for these last several years because it's probably gone. You're right, and that's a great story with Vlade and you. I, I hadn't heard that before. Sometimes you can just feel it. Yep. And you, you're just being realistic that this has been a great run and let's open a beer and post each other and uh, really appreciate what we have. But not, don't wait for it to be 10 years from now to look up and say, geez, I wish we would have appreciated at the moment. Even in the loss, these personalities is to say, this was pretty damn good. Let's, let's appreciate it. Do you get the feeling Steve Kerr is going to read this book? I would be surprised. I don't think so. And I would probably give the same answer, even if he had cooperated on it. I, I think that the topic that in least interests Steve Kerr in the world might be Steve Kerr. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why some people had sort of suggested to me that, well, maybe the reason he doesn't want to have a hand in this book is because he's going to do his own at some point. And, and again, I don't think so. I think the only thing worse, and I mentioned this in there, the only thing worse than somebody writing 300 pages on Steve Kerr is Steve Kerr writing it himself. I, right. I, I never, never say never. Maybe he does. Maybe somebody reads it to just sort of give it a once over and say, you know, it's all good. You weren't accused of being part of the Kennedy assassination or something like that. You aren't trashed. I don't know. I, I just don't think that it's anything that I don't think he's interested in reading about Steve Kerr. We live in a crazy world, and I know you made it very clear right at the front of this podcast. You, you didn't write the book to talk about how he feels about Trump. You didn't write the book for China. And, and I get all of that. But I'm just curious. Do you feel because he is so open with his criticism on certain topics that people have looked at him somewhat differently? And maybe, I guess, because we live in such a politically charged country and we have so many issues that we're battling it with right now. Do you think that's tarnished the name Steve Kerr at all? Well, certainly for some people, but for others, it probably elevated him. It's become such a, you use the perfect, perfect word, it, it's charged. And it's the politics. And this is not a book about politics, but it certainly is part of his life. And so it gets into a lot of these things. It's what makes him so interesting that it's part of his evolution. When you tell a guy's life story, you want to talk about how they've changed. And he went from always being interested in these topics to being willing to talk about it, to encouraging others to ask him about it because he really wants to speak out. So certainly I think that somebody's going to see the book and, and look at it and say, oh, I'm not reading about, about, you know, that liberal. Uh, and somebody's going to look at it and say, oh, that's the guy that hates Trump. Good for him. So it's going to be both sides. <laughs> my, guess is right. that, my guess is that it's it, it's not a book 
that's intended to change anyone's mind, and I don't think it will change anyone's mind. Again, it's not asking people to to agree or disagree with his with his stance on the White House politics or gun control or voting rights or anything like that. All these topics that are very close to Steve. Uh, it's not a deep examination of those topics, but again, I think that that there's always going to be that that top out. Sure. People are going to make the decision before they even read it. And yes, it has it, it has brought him down in, in the eyes of some people that just want the just give me my basketball, don't give me the politics. But then for other people, I think it probably raises them up. Good, this guy's using his platform to share his voice to try to make a change for what he sees as the better. This is not a basketball book. This is a life story book. So, and, and I, I hope I'm portraying that accurately. Who is your target audience? I mean, the book's coming out on June 15th. It's available and we can, before we let you go, you can let everyone know how they can order their book. But I mean, how would you characterize your, your target audience for this book? Well, I love the way you put it. And I'll tell you exactly how I pitched it. When you go through the, the process to to write a book, you, you sort of send something out on paper, and then you have some phone conversations as the final step with the publisher. And here's my my five-second pitch on what I wanted this book to be about, that it's the story of a guy with a unique career but a fascinating life. Hmm. And that's it. I wanted it to be a life story not a basketball story. I hope it appeals to people who certainly, obviously, you want it to be the basketball fans, people that have loved Steve in Tucson and Chicago, San Antonio, and the Bay Area in particular. And he's certainly popular at other stops. And I know he's still popular in Portland, even though he was there for like the blink of an eye. But I hope that it appeals to people, even if they're not basketball fans, because it's not an X's and O's book at all. There's very few stats. It is about this personality, and I want it to appeal to people who are interested in finding out more about somebody that has had a major impact on professional basketball since the 1980s, 1990s. I, I think it just crosses so many as that I wanted to reach into a mainstream because it's amazing to be able to write a book and you're obviously talking about Michael Jordan and David Robinson and Steph Curry and Phil Jackson and Greg Popovich. But it's also, you don't have to reach very far at all to get Kim Jong-un and Yasser Arafat and 9-11 into Steve Kerr's life story. You don't have to reach far at all to and there's one part in there that I detailed this, how Steve's name, how about this? Steve Kerr's name comes up in the White House in a conversation with President Obama, not just, not just you know, media speculation mm-hmm. or somebody tossing it out in the quarters in Washington. In the White House, Barack Obama says, all right, we're having a meeting. Let's discuss some ways to approach the new leader of, North Korea. How do we, this is a young guy. What do we know about him? How can we maybe make some inroads? And can you believe this? Somebody, one of the people there says, let's send Steve Kerr. <laughs> the guy wanted to, in front of Barack Obama, in the White House says, let's make Steve Kerr a special envoy, <laughs> almost sort of a pseudo ambassador. Just send him over there. 
Now, as it turned out, we got Dennis Rodman right. by accident and somehow and somehow still avoided nuclear annihilation. That's the kind of life we're talking about. Right. That you get you get Steve Kerr and Barack Obama and Kim Jong un in the same story. Wow. In the same in the same pages, in the same paragraph. And there's so many moments like that as I was writing it. And as I said, I'm, I've been around him for, for decades. <laughs> but there's so many times I, I was writing it, I said, seriously? We're now talking about Yasser Arafat meeting with his dad and his brother, inviting him over to the house? And it's just, it's just there's so many moments like that. It's like, wow, this is, this is not your typical story. So I hope it doesn't come across that way. And I hope that it appeals to people who are looking for something besides the typical sports story, because it definitely is not sort of thing where I've lined up a hundred box scores and said, sure. then he had this game then he had that game, then he had this game. With that said though, a, a lot of the people that you needed to interview for this book are involved with the league. And we are still at the, the, in a pandemic, although it looks like at the tail end, which means no games, bubbles, no locker room access, how challenging was that for you? You had already started this project and then boom, the pandemic hits and boy, I mean, you don't have access anywhere anymore. Yes, you can do things over Zoom, but that's a lot different than going up to someone at the end of the game and going, hey, can I grab you for 10 minutes? I'm doing this story on Steve Kerr, blah, blah, right. blah. How challenging was that? It added to the challenge, but it also came with the perspective that my difficult day lining up an interview was the least of our problems. I never needed that reminder that, that there are real, real issues going on in the world medically as I was working on this, and my Steve Kerr book was not one of them. So that helped to always keep that in mind. But strictly from the, from the writing standpoint, yes, that, that did add to the challenge. Uh, there were some people I would have wanted to get. There was some information I wanted to get where somebody had to tell me, you know, they're going to take a drive and, and look through the files and get something for me. And he said, I just can't do that. And I, I certainly understood that. Um, there's nothing you can do about that. Uh, it, it, as I said, this book was impacted in other ways that it was supposed to come out a long time ago. The positive side was as I tried to get people on the phone and I would sort of say to them, hey, thanks for finding some time on, on your schedule to you know, spend some time with me. He would kind of say, "Well, I got nothing else to do. You know, <laughs> I don't have right. a game. I, I don't have a game tonight, or I, I, it's not like I'm getting on a plane or anything like that." So they're like, "You know, call me every day. I don't care. I just it gives me something to do." So just something you kind of had to to push through and and continue to work. What's the easiest way for people to get this book? It will be in most major bookstores on June fifteenth, and as always, support your your independent bookstores if you can. Uh, if there's none in your area, certainly the, the larger chains. We're told that the numbers are good in terms of the requests for the number of books that some of the larger chains are asking for. And as always, uh, online works as well, that you can order it and you can pre-order it now and it'll be there. I think it's supposed to arrive June 15th or it ships June 15th and will be there soon after. So the good thing is timing-wise, uh, anybody that's looking for a Father's Day gift, <laughs> If I can yep. put on my marketing hat, this could work out well. But but certainly online always works and in person because I know that some of the major bookstores 
have shown uh, very, very good interest. Well, I really appreciate it. You and I have known each other for a long time. I'm so happy. I know how hard you've worked and what an arduous process uh, it was to uh, complete this book. And congratulations. Phenomenal. June 15th, Steve Kerr, A Life. Scott Howard Cooper, the author. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing the story. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Well, I, I appreciate your friendship. It means so much to me. I've really enjoyed this conversation, and uh, hopefully people enjoy it. Time now for our Crowd Ultra Q&A. If you have not signed up, it's easy to do. Just go to crowdultra.com. Really, I've loved the questions I've been receiving lately. Mitch wants to know, do you agree with the NBA GM saying player empowerment is the worst thing ever that's happened in professional sports? I wouldn't say it's the worst thing that's ever happened to professional sports, but I think it's damaging professional sports, and I do believe that there are fans that are being turned off by it. So, I mean, it's very interesting. Kevin wants to know, is Rich Paul right or wrong saying that white athletes don't want black agents? Listen, Rich Paul is an incredibly respected agent. I've had several conversations with him. He's in the game. I'm not. That's what he does for a living. He would know I wouldn't. And I have a lot of respect for Rich Paul. And so, you know, I think there's got to be some validity to it. He backed it up with some numbers. I don't know enough about to really comment. Obviously, the NBA is a predominantly black league. So when you look at the percentage of white players, yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. But I would say this again. Rich Paul knows a lot more about this than I do. Stacy wants to know, hey, Grant, will we see Naomi Osaka play tennis again? It's a great question. I think we will. This is a very complicated issue. Uh, I, for one, think it's great that she withdrew from the French Open. I mean, if she has mental health issues, she needs to deal with it and figure it out. Personally, uh, I think that she does have an obligation uh, to talk to the media. And again, I made this very clear on my rant. I am not an expert on mental health. I don't know anything about mental health in terms of, you know, what causes it, the severity of it. I, I don't know any of that. You know, I'm a sportscaster. You know, I'm not a neurologist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. But hopefully she can deal with it where she can talk to uh, the media and play again. Will wants to know, does Coach K's retirement surprise you? Not really. I mean, he's been doing it for so long. I think we kind of expected Roy Williams to retire, and he did. I thought maybe Coach K would give it just a few more years. But no, honestly, you know, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised at all. Parker wants to know, do you agree with Snoop saying the Lakers are soft and Vogel can't coach? Is that the same team that won the championship last year, or is it a different Lakers team and a different coach? Stupid comment. Ryan wants to know, was it smart to replace Ainge with Brad Stevens? Well, first of all, you know, if Danny wanted to retire and it was time, doesn't have anything to do whether it was smart or not. Now, as far as Brad Stevens, if that's the part that you're asking, time will tell. Danny Ainge was a phenomenal general manager. It's a very good question, Ryan. Time will tell, that is for sure. Alex wants to know, are NBA players in any way responsible 
for the fan behavior that is occurring? I don't think so. And second of all, I don't. I think that this is a mountain being made out of a molehill. I I don't think fan behavior is an issue. I believe that there have always been, since I've been going to games in the early 60s, there's always been incidents of fan behavior. Now with all the cameras and social media and the sensitivity, it's just coming to the forefront now. Yeah, I personally don't believe that one fan out of 15,000 that does something stupid, okay, like throwing a water bottle, means that, you know, we have a problem with fan behavior. I I don't think that there's a problem with fan behavior. You know, again, I think if you take one or two individuals out of 15,000, that doesn't mean you have a problem. I I just think it's being completely blown out of proportion. Matthew wants to know, were you an Ali fan growing up? I sure was. Everyone was an Ali fan. I remember, I've always told this story. I remember being on the school ground of my grade school when Ali was fighting and leading up to Ali Frazier, we all talked about it. The boys talked about it. The girls talked about it. Boxing back then, particularly the heavyweight division, that was, I mean, everyone talked about Muhammad Ali. Everyone. Ali, even in, really, as kids, everyone knew who Muhammad Ali was. So, yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, Dylan wants to know, what's my take on the Major League Baseball All-Star Game lawsuit? I don't have enough information to give you my take. I don't think the All-Star Game should have been moved out of Atlanta. I think it's just a, a, a disgrace that they moved it out of Atlanta. You know, I think that a predominantly black city, because of what happened with the pandemic and those businesses that needed the revenue greatly, now not only do they lose so much from the pandemic, now Major League Baseball takes the All-Star game out of a city with a very, very high black population, and those businesses were depending on the revenue surrounding the All-Star game. There have been reports that the city's going to lose as much as $100 million. It's just it's disgraceful. Tom wants to know, can the Hawks beat the Sixers? If, if Joel Embiid does not play, or is not effective, yes, they can beat the Sixers. Rich wants to know, are you disappointed by the Knicks not making it further? I'm not a Knicks fan, so I'm not disappointed. The reality is the Knicks had a very good year. They were, what, a fourth seed after not being in the playoffs and being, you know, Tom Thibodeau did a great job. So it's not really about being disappointed. They had a very good year, and I I think they're very well or very well positioned, I should say, uh, to continue their success. Mr. Wolf says, any chance Jawan Howard is an NBA head coach next season? I wouldn't rule it out. I don't know what his contractual commitment is to Michigan where he's done a marvelous job. I think Jawan Howard will be an NBA head coach at some point, and I think he'll be a very good NBA coach. Chris wants to know, how will the transgender weightlifter tarnish the Olympics long-term. You know what, Chris? This is a hot-button issue. And I personally think that it is wrong. And I believe that it is unfair 
That's my opinion. I know a lot of people disagree with me. But to me, it is unfair to a female athlete in a sports competition to have a transgender competing against them. Just my opinion. I think it's unfair. Now, a lot of people are going to, geez, Grant, you know, you know, I don't care what you say. That's my opinion. I'm entitled to my opinion. I think it's wrong. I think it's absolutely wrong. And I, I don't, no one can explain to me how that is fair. It's not fair. It's, it's not fair at all. I mean, if you had a daughter that was in the Olympics and had trained her entire life to get to that incredible athletic achievement platform, and you look and she's competing against transgenders and and the transgenders win the competition, is that fair? I'm sorry. I don't think it's fair. Lucas wants to know, did you watch any of the NCAA lacrosse tournament? I did. I loved it. I watched a little bit of the Maryland-Virginia game. Great game. Great game. I thought it was great. I, I love watching uh, the NCAA uh, lacrosse tournament. Jackson wants to know, do you believe the rumors that the Broncos are close to getting Rodgers. You know, Jackson, I just don't pay attention to those type of rumors. You know, I really don't. Chase wants to know, are you surprised the Wizards weren't sweeped? No, without Embiid, I thought that that would open the door uh, for Washington. Sam wants to know, is Ryan Reeves of Vegas and his two-game suspension too much? You know, it's based on the individual. He got suspended last year in the playoffs for, you know, a brutal hit. So I'll say no. And Jimmy wants to know, can the Lakers win it all missing Anthony Davis? I would say no. I would say no. I don't think that they can. Thank you very much for our Crowd Ultra questions. Just go to CrowdUltra.com and maybe I'll answer your question right here on my podcast. It's time for Rant. Today's rants brought to you by New Works Plumbing of Sacramento for your plumbing needs and repairs and their 24-7 expert technicians always available to you. Just go to newworksplumbing.com, N-E-W-W-R-X-Plumbing.com. It's very interesting. Yesterday, I ran into an individual who works for the Miami Heat, and we were talking for about 15 or 20 minutes, and he didn't know who I was. And then when I told him what I did, we had a you know a very interesting conversation. And he brought up this point. He says to me, how long will De'Aaron Fox stay in Sacramento before he demands a trade? And I started thinking about that. I'm like, you know what? That sure as hell wouldn't surprise me. Can you imagine what De'Aaron is thinking watching John Morant play in the first round of the playoffs? Can you imagine what Fox thinks of when he watches Trey Young advancing to the second round? Can you imagine what he thinks of watching Luka all guys that were drafted after him in the playoffs and his team, the Kings, you know, aren't even close to 500. And it got me thinking, isn't this the year? I know we've been saying that for year after year after year after year. But don't the Kings have to break through the window or the brick wall or the concrete door? Doesn't this coming year have to be the year to appease the Aaron Fox? I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean, is the Aaron Fox going to waste his talent on a non-playoff team? Or are you are though of the mind that, well, if De'Aaron played better, the Kings would be in the playoffs? Well, I mean, I think he had a very good year. Could he be better? Yeah, of course he could be better. But look at what's going on in the NBA right now. Look at it, the players that are in the upper echelon 
And De'Aaron has not made an all-star game, so believe me, when I make these comments, I'm fully aware of what I'm saying, but he's a very good player. How much longer is De'Aaron Fox going to be content being on a non-playoff team in Sacramento before he goes up to Monty McNair and says, hey, I'm requesting a trade. Get me out of here. I don't want to be here anymore. The pressure is really on in Sacramento because if that were to happen, oh, my gosh, that would be two steps back again for the Sacramento Kings. And I thought it was very interesting that somebody that works for another franchise asked that question to me. Don't rule it out, folks. You got a big year coming up. And I can't even imagine what the hell goes through Fox's mind when he watches all of these young point guards taken in the draft after him that are in and having great success. Think about that. This is really the year they got to get it done. Or don't be surprised if Fox goes, you know what? I need a change of scenery. Don't think it can't happen because it's happening all over sports and it's happening every single year. And that's my rant for today. And that is my podcast. My thanks to Scott Howard Cooper for talking about the book that's coming out on June 15th, Steve Kerr, A Life. And don't forget to check out my video rants as well over on YouTube. Thank you so much for checking out If You Don't Like That with Grant Napier. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.